Hello and welcome to a Compassionate Leadership interview. I'm Chris Whited and my guest today is Lara Bundock, founder and chief executive of the Snowdrop Project, the charity that supports survivors of human trafficking. You can find her on Twitter at Lara Snowdrop. Lara, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So your Twitter page describes you as founder of Snowdrop, speaker, adventurer, actress, human rights advocate, embracing a life of faith, expecting the unexpected. What's the most unexpected thing that's happened to you? Great question. All of life. Um, didn't really expect my life to go in the direction it's gone at all. But individual unexpected things. I ended up advising the government of Turkmenistan on what they should do to encourage the NGO community in their country to engage in fighting human trafficking. That was a very unexpected and interesting moment um, in life. Sat around a large conference table that look, looked like one of those ones that you see in the United Nations videos when they, when when you see them on the news. Um, and so I had a microphone and they had people who directly translated into everybody's ears what you were saying. And, and everybody was really receptive other than the head of police who took his headphones out while he was staring at me. <laughs> so I don't think he particularly enjoyed me. But other than that, they were really receptive. And I ended up doing interviews in Libya with people who are in displaced persons camps, which was fascinating. And that was before my snowdrop time. And that was very unexpected in and of itself. But then when we were in the camp doing the interviews at one point, there was gunfire that broke out around us. And I... (laughs) didn't quite know what to do in that situation, trying to take the lead from the people I was interviewing because they were more used to it. And they just carried on. They just kept going on with the interview. And I thought, should we be stopping? Should we be doing anything? But yeah, no, they, we just carried on. So those are probably two of my most unexpected moments in life. Never a dull moment. Yes. <laughs> Tell me about the Snowdrop Project. Hmm. So the Snowdrop Project is a charity that, as you said, supports survivors of human trafficking. Um, We support um, adults, mainly, um, who have been trafficked, and we support them with kind of long-term care and helping them to reintegrate back into society and to start their new futures away from exploitation and to look at what it it is that they want um, to do with their lives and move them forwards to that point. So we, we've grown a lot, but currently um, we provide four different services. So we have a casework team who are mainly made up of social workers and they provide support around independent living. So they look at supporting people with housing income. So it might be trying to find a job, but it could be benefits as well because we have a lot of people with mental and physical health problems. It could be trying to sort through legal issues. So it could be an immigration issue. It could be a public law matter. It could be um, child protection matter. It could be working with the police to convict their traffickers. But essentially the casework team will support people with multiple aspects of life. We then have the therapy team, which is made up of counsellors. People usually know what that means and what that looks like. So they help people with the the kind of mental health repercussions of trafficking. So a lot of people suffer PTSD, depression, anxiety. 
So we have a lot of people who are referred in for that service. And then the other two services are community activities, which are brilliant. So we do mum and toddlers group sewing English in a, uh, as a second language and dance. Um, but then we do other different activities as one-off activities when people want that. And then our last uh, service is the house renovation project, which for anybody who used to watch Challenge Annika is like that, who I thought was brilliant when I was a teenager. <laughs> and it involves uh, when a person that we're supporting gets given a council house, a permanent council house. Usually, if people haven't seen those, they are... Uh, very bare, there are no carpets, the walls aren't painted, sometimes they're not in a very good state of repairs, um, there's a lot of cleaning that needs to be done, and then there's absolutely no furniture, and the people that we support often don't have the means to get furniture, or the community to support them with turning that into a home, and so we initially saw that that stage of development meant that people's mental health would plummet, they were much more likely to either go missing or tenancy breakdown, um, so we thought, okay, well, we can do something about that and we take in a group of volunteers usually within about two or three days and we blitz the house um, with the person that we're supporting so we re-empower them to choose their colours and things like that so we paint the house decorate the house and then we get donations of secondhand furniture um, from the local community and turn it into a home and so those are the direct pieces of work that we do as survivors and then on a larger level we do a lot of work around policy development and national advocacy for survivors of trafficking and their rights because we were the first charity in the UK to provide long-term support to survivors and that is something that we very adamantly believe is the thing that's going to make the difference and prevent people from being retargeted and going back being re-exploited. And what motivated you to set up Snowdrop? I trained as a social worker um, at Sheffield University and then I did some time in statutory social work and then I fell into this is a longer story so I won't go into that but I fell into working in a safe house for victims of human trafficking in this city and that was the very beginning of survivors being supported nationally uh, around around the country and so I joined I guess the UK journey just as they were starting and I I started working as a social worker in one of the government safe houses and what I observed was that although we were doing something to address the issue and to try and tackle it we were only providing support to survivors for 45 days which is the equivalent of about six weeks and Kind of understandably, the people I was supporting in the safe house as a social worker, they would begin to make progress. They would start the journey of recovery. But then when we exited them rather abruptly and then couldn't continue that support in the community and they fell through so many gaps, there just didn't seem to be appropriate services to look after them. And I would get phone calls from... GPs, solicitors, housing officers, or from the survivors themselves, basically falling apart and saying, can you do something? Why aren't you supporting them? And, and the phone calls would be about tenancy breakdown, mental health skyrocketing, drug and alcohol addiction suddenly developing, people going missing, people being re-exploited and targeted um, in abusive relationships. And it was just kind of one thing after the other. And there was one particular client that I went to visit in the community 
who I thought she would have been fine because of all the people in the safe house, she actually made the biggest progress. But then when I moved her out, she really struggled with the isolation factor. And when I went to see her, it was only about a month after I moved her out, but she was she only had a futon in her house. It was the middle of winter, freezing cold. She didn't have the heating on. She had turned back to alcohol because what we didn't know is why in her past she'd had an alcohol problem which she'd then turned back to because she felt so lonely and so isolated which obviously had then had a major impact on her ability to manage her finances her mental health had absolutely plummeted and then she got back into an abusive and potentially exploitative relationship and I remember leaving thinking what am I doing I'm, I'm just putting a sticky plaster on a, a gaping wound and expecting it to work and after I went to a meeting with all of the safe houses around the country, it was it, that was organised by, by the government, they talked us through different issues and then they said, do you have any questions? And everybody had the same question in the room. Everybody said, well, what do we do when they leave? Because everybody is falling apart. And, and the answer was, well, we don't have any more resources, so teach people to live independently in 45 days and that's, that's the best you can do. And I just thought... You don't live in the real world. And so I kind of thought, well, I, I, I just I can't do nothing because I'm that type of person. So, yeah, so I basically, long story short, brainstormed all the issues that somebody would face when they left. Then I brainstormed everything that somebody would need to be trained in to support that person and started a training program, which at the time was for volunteers and we still do have volunteers but we now have staff as well but at the beginning stages it was training people who had already some level of experience of working with vulnerable people to then work out and learn how to support a survivor of trafficking in the community. The Independent Anti-Slavery Commissioner set up uh, pursuant to the Modern Slavery Act 2015 says on its website that it demands a consistent response across the UK to ensure that victims are properly supported. Is that response in place right now? Hmm. No. Um, <laughs> there is some form of response in place that is regularly being reviewed, but I would say that that system is pretty broken and at the moment there is f more and more weight being put on that system. So just to give you an idea of growth nationally the number of people when I first started working in the system which was back in 2011 the number of people referred for support was about 700 and last year because we haven't quite got the statistics for this year yet because we haven't reached the end of the year but last year it was 7,000 so from 2011 to 2018 we've seen a growth from 700 to 7,000 which is is quite a massive jump and th the system is is struggling to cope with that so it's there are many different ideas and thoughts going on at the moment to reconsider that and I think a big part of what is needed is actually to continue to upskill and train people who would be people identifying victims because again that is still something that we're struggling with is people correctly identifying victims of trafficking because it's it's still a very unknown area although it is it is gaining more attention and then really learning what does effective support look like and what does it look like to effectively tackle and do early intervention because those are new conversations that are being started started to have and I'm again I'm really fascinated fascinated in some of those what does long-term care look like but also what does early intervention look like how can we prevent it from getting to the point that it is mm. it is so bad 
Can you give us a feel for what proportion of those 7,000 victims actually do receive the extent of services that you provide? Mm. Uh, yeah, <laughs> ish. So of those 7,000 that are referred in, I know that there is about 40, 30 to 40% that don't ever actually even receive support at all. They fall through the gap from the, the kind of mechanisms that are in place, which is a major issue, um, first and foremost. And then of those people who do get the support, long-term kind of reintegration support just isn't a guarantee at the moment. It's a postcode lottery. So in, in South Yorkshire, it exists. Well, certainly in Sheffield and Rotherham, and we're looking to expand into Barnsley. So it exists in those areas. And then there's a couple of organisations around the country that are doing it. But in general, it doesn't really exist. So what does a typical day look like for you personally? I don't know if there is a typical day, but I'll have a go. <laughs> um, if I am in Sheffield, a typical day could look like having a senior leadership meeting, talking about the kind of strategy of growth of, of where we're going. It will usually look like meeting with a couple of members of the team, answering a lot of emails and phone calls. I get a lot of um, emails that come in on a daily basis, which is quite hard to stay on top of. And then kind of a variety of different things. It could be meetings with stakeholders. So it could be meetings with um, other safe houses, which is where we get our referrals from. Or it could be meetings with the NHS or with the local authority or with housing. Last week I was over in Barnsley because we were looking at the expansion over there. If I am elsewhere because I tend to go around in the country quite a lot, a lot of time in London, and then doing some time in, in Nottingham, because we're the, one of the contracted trainers for Nottingham, so I'll go over and I will train mainly the local authority over there in how to develop some of their systems and knowledge. If I'm in London, it's looking like conversations around policy development, so we're part of an organisation called the Anti-Trafficking Monitoring Group, which is the national watchdog for looking at development in the country around what we're doing and I'm an advisor to the anti-slavery commissioner so it could be going and seeing her yeah it it has it's it has a lot of variety mm. um the job so I think the balance of my job is mainly looking at the health and growth of the organization on the one hand and then making sure that we are also informing best practice because that's what we stand for in the country and developing the national response in some way so I see that as kind of my role is to, to handle both sides as is looking after the organization's health and then trying to inform the country. So you have to be pretty versatile how would you describe your leadership philosophy? I would say that my leadership philosophy is about compassion because it's that's why we're on this podcast but also I would say about you're never totally there you've never got it quite sorted and, and right I think and so willing to be challenged and take feedback and ideas and thoughts from the team and from people externally and from those who have gone before me to learn what to put in place and to try and think about what can we do better how can we move forwards is there anything that we're doing so I think my leadership philosophy is to to as much as possible to stay humble and to listen to others around you in order to hopefully be the best leader that you can be and encourage everybody else to take their part in the organisation. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, no, it does. Uh, it sounds a pretty good leadership philosophy to me. Thanks. I'm constantly reminded of it, I think. Because <laughs> when, when I think, oh, yeah, I feel like I'm getting this right. This is great. And then I usually get sucked between the eyes and I'm like, no, yeah, OK, keep going. <laughs> keep learning. Projects like this can be hard on the volunteer caseworkers and befrienders. Mm. How do you look after them psychologically in particular? So I think it's hard on the entire team because it is a very can be a really traumatic area um, to work in. So there's there's a couple of things that we do. One thing really briefly to mention that we've done recently is we wanted to really encourage a culture of this idea of yes we can do it in celebration because we often hear stories that are really hard to hear and so we have a, a big yay board in the office that all members of staff whether they're fundraising staff or whether they are volunteers or whether they're caseworkers or counsellors if something good happens that they want to celebrate they'll talk about it and then they'll write it on a post-it note and stick it on the yay board and that's lovely to see and you can see it as, as soon as you come into our office that's one of the first things that you see and and that has a really nice element to it but what we do structurally in the organization so if people are employed in the organization we have a well-being package and so we pay for our staff to see external counselors once a month and i I don't hear any of those, <laughs> what goes on in those sessions. I don't want to, um, because that is specifically about them and their mental health and them, their well-being. And that came from a place of my own experiences of working in social work and dealing with a lot of trauma and not having that support and it having a big impact on my own mental health. And I remember when I set up Snowdrop, I, re I remember thinking, I never want to be responsible as much as possible and I can avoid if I can avoid it for being the cause of somebody else's mental health breakdown because I didn't think through the staff and the volunteers well-being so one of them is is counseling and then we put in quite strict policies around supervision so our again our paid staff are supervised on their cases usually once every two weeks as a group and then they have individual supervision and again with our volunteers so if they're a volunteer caseworker they will be supervised by a senior caseworker usually once every two weeks if they've got kind of a, a more complicated person that they're supported a complicated case if it is uh, somebody who's more independent and doesn't need as much support again the volunteer may see their senior caseworker a little less just because they're seeing the person that they're supporting a little less but we're really keen on making sure that that person feels fully supported and then we also put in place group supervision for befrienders and casework volunteers where we bring them together and discuss things that they're learning things that they're struggling with things that we want to pass on so it might be new reflection techniques it may be that we want them to think about new ideas of development and support that has come out um, sharing research sharing ideas having discussions just to also make sure that we're investing them because the volunteers are investing so much of their time and energy into helping vulnerable people we want to make sure that they also feel like they get something out of it and even before they start volunteering with us so we won't let anybody come into contact really with with a survivor before they've gone through our training program mm. so if they're a caseworker they go through a, a training program that is eight weeks long one night a week not, not really intense <laughs> um but one night a week for eight weeks if they're a befriender they will go through a four-week training program instead and so we make sure that people as much as possible feel like they are equipped and that they 
know-ish what they're doing, but also that they know where they can go if they need that help. How is uh, the Snowdrop Project funded? Lots of ways. Um, So our kind of journey of funding, I think, is a really interesting one. When we first set up in 2012, we weren't a charity at the time. We did eventually become a charity at the end of 2013, which was a really long journey. Uh, But even at the point that we got charity status, we didn't get funding. So we actually had about three years where we were basically unfunded, which was a real challenge. I, I, I won't go into lots of detail. I didn't take a salary for a couple of years or so, which was challenging. And again, similarly, the, the woman that I, I set up with, Rachel, also didn't. Um, but when we got to the point where we thought, we've either got to get this funded or we've got to close it because both of our lives were really starting to kind of fall apart a little bit. And we applied to the big lottery, to their their large fund. At the time, it was the Women and Girls Fund, although we do now support both men and women. But at the time, we were just um, taking uh, referrals for women. And we kind of went, go big or go home, and applied for a significant amount of money. So I think at the time, it was about 130000 a year, which felt huge to us. And, And that was the equivalent of about... Well, it was something like 98% of the funding that we would have to run us. And amazingly, the big lottery took a risk on us, which talking to a lot of people is unheard of. And they said, uh, there are sort of two reasons why. One, you run like you're already funded. So you already have outcome uh, measurements. You already almost have HR structures in place, even though you're not employing people. And you have systems that are there. So you kind of look like you are already running in a way that is funded. So we would like to see if you can do that with no money. We'd kind of like to see what you can do with money. Um, But the other condition was they challenged us and said, you know, we're basically giving you 100% of your income if you want to come back to us in three years time for further funding you will need to diversify your income stream because we won't give you that again mm-hmm. and so we worked really hard over the next three years to diversify our income streams so we built up uh, quite a fundraising uh, events sort of strategy which has been brilliant so jumping out of planes running half marathons and 10ks and all that kind of thing which has been excellent and then individual donors, um, we're always looking for new individual donors who will support us on our journey because that is the type of income that we can rely on and keep us going, which is just fabulous. And then applying to more uh, individual grant streams. And we have just reapplied to the big lottery and we've applied for a similar amount of money, but this time it's 30% of our income rather than 100%. And we were successful in that application. And they said that is part of the reason why is because that level of diversification over three years is unusual to go from 100% to 30%, but being the same amount. And so, yeah, so they've they've backed us again. That's a tremendous achievement. Thank you. You seem to be the BBC's go-to person for human trafficking. How did that come about? (laughs) Do you want to drink some tea, by the way? I will have a bit of tea. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, there was definitely um, a period of time where... Uh, the BBC, Sky, Radio often got in contact. And to be fair, they still do, but sometimes I'm not available. I don't know how it came about, if I'm honest, um, as is the case with a lot of these things. I think my name got passed on. I did some local 
interviews. And then I think as people saw, I guess, my responses and some of my insights and thoughts on it, then I would get contacted. And similarly, when I was, I had one appearance, which was on kind of BBC Breakfast, and that went pretty well, other than I made up a word. But other than that, it went really well. <laughs> and and, I, and because it went well afterwards, they said, can we keep your details on record and get in contact with you, with you if we need you again? And I said, yeah. And the same thing happened with Sky. That was uh, an interesting one because my train was delayed. And so where I thought I would have an hour in hair and makeup to get ready and think about what I was going to say, I got there maybe not even 10 minutes to go and I got shoved into a chair makeup thrown on my face then thrown into a room with a camera pointed at my face and a kind of a television screen and they said watch that before you talk but then your earpiece will tell you we're coming to you in in three seconds when you hear that don't look at the screen look at the camera don't look anywhere else answer the questions that come through the earpiece is that okay and I went (laughs) Yeah, sure. Great. So that was, honestly, that was a bit of a um, baptism of fire in that one. But it went well. And then Sky asked me to go back another time. um, And I did that from home over Skype. But yeah, I don't, I don't know other than to say they seemed to have enjoyed having me. And you've given evidence to the Home Affairs Select Committee. What, if anything, came of that? Yeah, that was an amazing experience to give evidence um, and it, it was it was quite a long um, session um, with a vet keeper and we were I think as a sector really excited about the fact that the Home Affairs Select Committee were taking an interest but with the recent uh, election basically that has taken a back seat and we don't know if it's going to be picked up again so we will be working with a couple of different organisations and think tanks in order to put a bit of pressure on to say, don't let this drop. This is really important. You have some very good information that's been shared with the Home Affairs Select Committee. Please make sure that you continue to look at this and bring conclusions out of it because I'd be really concerned (laughs) if it did get dropped because there was so much rich evidence, not just from myself, but from so many people in the field. And it would be a real shame if that didn't go anywhere. So building Snowdrop to its current level is quite an achievement along the way is there a failure or mistake that you've learned from yeah I mean I feel like I I learn all the time there are tiny mistakes so when I first applied to the big lottery I thought I'd kind of thought of all the different uh, growth implications and financial implications but I forgot one and that was the increase in the need for interpreters so we were kind of using interpreters that that was I I put in about £200 a month, not thinking about the fact that we would grow from supporting 10 survivors to, well, 124 last year. And suddenly we needed to fund about between 1000 to £2,000 worth of interpreting costs. And that we really had to deal with very quickly. And that was a learning curve and thinking about the implications of growth. But I think I learned a lot through our last building move, which we've got to go through again, in trying to work out how to continue to keep staff involved and updated without worrying people when you've only got half the information. And and I feel like I'm still learning that, if I'm honest. 
and and yeah we we had to try to move everybody and one of the successes is that we got some amazing uh corporate organizations involved like arm and john lewis and arup and they were really really supportive and so the move the actual move itself was really successful but there were things like i hadn't checked on wi-fi connections so when we got into the building all of a sudden it didn't have whatever is called fibre to the cabinet. I'm so un-IT literate. I don't really know what that means. But we all of a sudden had to respond and go, oh my goodness, we need we need the internet to do what we do. And so we had to put in some very quick responses and that, that was a certain challenge. So I think just always trying to make sure that you think about the different avenues, but also learning to not beat myself up too much because there will always be even if you try and think of every single avenue there will always be something that you haven't quite seen and you just have to apologize and move forwards um, I, th- I think as leader of an anti-trafficking charity you kind of be excused for not knowing whether you had five minutes of the cabinet <laughs> thanks <laughs> appreciate it but yeah, I think that is my biggest lesson is actually you probably won't always get everything right and there'll always be those little things that you forget and they will have an impact and all you can do is apologise and, and move forwards and try and listen to people. And is there a particular experience or person that has inspired you in your leadership journey? This feels really cheesy to say, but probably my parents are... Just that they are not who you would potentially consider to be, you know, natural leaders. They're not in the public eye. They're not. They don't do anything like that. But in their jobs and in their lives, they have had a lot of responsibility for looking after a lot of people, and and again, their compassion towards people and their willingness to listen to them and think about their best interest is is really inspiring. And they have on multiple times kind of favoured others and sort of I guess laid their life down if you want to say it that way for the benefit of of another person but also been yeah they've also moved things forward my my mum made quite significant changes in her local area to the diabetes care that happened and she's left quite a legacy there and I think just seeing their approach to life and thinking about other people in in some ways, you know, I'm learning a lot about um, balancing uh, the demands of leadership and life with my own well-being as well. And those are things that I regularly have discussions with, well, particularly my mum about, because my mum also went through that same struggle of how do I balance my own uh, well-being with the demands of other people. And so having conversations with her. But yeah, they've been some of my biggest supporters, but they've also been some of the biggest uh, inspirers of what I've done. Lovely. That does provide a neat segue to what I was going to ask next, which <laughs> is, what does your self-care regime look like? Mm. I've had to learn that one as well, a lot. Because the, the three years where we went unfunded, and I'd also come out some really unhealthy workplaces that their ethic was work you to the bone and, and, and until you're kind of on the floor... So I picked up, A, some really unhealthy thought processes around my worth and value and also not having funding and, and trying to move that forward. So I, I did get quite ill at points. Um, and so I really had to learn the hard way and I'm now really kind of strict about it. So my external life to Snowjob is uh, exercise is one of the best things that clears my mind, that helps me feel 
like a normal person, like just the endorphins, honestly, if they could be prescribed, they should be. I, I had just had seven weeks where I wasn't allowed to exercise because I hurt myself running. And I'd posted on Facebook recently because I went back to the physio and she said I could go back to the gym. And I, I posted to say, you know, if I wasn't sold on the benefits of exercise prior to the last seven weeks, I am now. Because the last seven weeks has actually been quite a bit harder. Just having emotional resilience and having energy and having a clearer brain. And I, I found exercise is honestly one of the best things that we can do for ourselves. So, yeah, being really avid about um, exercise. So that looks like going to the gym, running, netball, um, those kind of things, which I love. And then I do acting. Previously, I tried to do plays all the time at the same time as working and I found that was not a good idea so what I've now done is worked out the quieter periods of the year so for me the quieter periods tend to be from around now to February so I know I could do a play within the next kind of two to three months and and bizarrely kind of over summer as well so I know that I could do a play over the summer period and then in between that it tends to be the much more busier period so I tend not to take a play on in those periods but I love getting the chance to go on stage have somebody tell me what to say <laughs> just learn lines I go on stage and be be another person get a chance to experience that which I love and then yeah just making sure that I have good um, friends and family around me get a chance to just be me basically mm. is there something you'd still like to achieve in work or leisure or both yeah good question work wise I have been thinking about this quite a lot recently and I don't know whether it's probably a question that I want to ask myself for 2020 um, is to really think about work wise what do I personally want to achieve because at the moment what I personally want to achieve in work is just to continue to grow snowdrop but also to change the nature of the way that we support survivors in the UK that there is an acceptance of best practice that there are training standards that that we are moving things forwards for the purpose of improving the way that survivors are looked after and I am really passionate about that on a personal basis yeah I mean I guess being very very honest I would I'd love to have a family and that's not something that I have at the moment and so that's yeah that's on, on my bucket list that sounds really weird to say but yeah at some point in my life I, I would really like to be a mum. From your experience what advice would you give to someone wanting to found and lead a charity? I'm actually mentoring somebody at the moment who is in the process of, of uh, starting a charity and and it's it's funny actually talking somebody through the journey that I went through because I did a lot of the beginning stages without knowing at all what I was doing and I feel very fortunate that I came across some incredible people who gave me advice along the way and now giving her advice I am looking at some of the practical sides, so helping her think about budgeting and forecasting, those kind of things, which honestly I used to go into absolute spirals about. I used to just cry on one of my friends who was talking to me about a £10,000 budget. So I guess if somebody's thinking of founding a charity, I would say be prepared that it will be hard. <laughs> you need to be prepared to constantly learn. You need to be willing to have 
other people help you on that journey because if you are not if you enter it thinking I can do this and I don't need anybody else you will absolutely fail at the first hurdle when I was thinking about setting up Snowdrop I went to my boss at the time to talk to her about the idea and although she said well we won't support you in it we won't you can't do it under us okay um but what she did say which was probably one of the best pieces of advice I got was if you can think of one other person who would do this with you I think you should give it a go and I'm really glad she said that because I'm not sure at the time I would have naturally scoured my brain to think about oh should somebody else do this with me because I just kind of went oh yeah I've got this idea and I can see this happening I can see this happening and what I've realized as I've gone along is that I have a lot of ability to see solutions and create strategy and have a vision and and be inspiring and doing all those kind of things I'm not as good at necessarily some of the minute detail and 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 some of the kind of in detail management or that kind of thing and the woman that I um started it with uh, called Rachel who who's still with us sort of seven eight years later and we bounce off each other all the time she is one of the most incredible managers that I have ever known her ability and and she has a similar ethos and ethic to me of of constantly learning and she learns more through books and podcasts and things like that I think I learn more from other people and and having conversations but she will regularly come in and say oh gosh I've I read this book about this management technique and thinking about this and thinking about this and and she inspires me actually if I think back to that question of who inspires me most she's actually one of the people that inspires me and if I hadn't had her if we hadn't been walking together in this there's no way that the organisation would be where it is today at all. And we have a relationship where she will give me the hard truths and I will also give her the hard truths. Mm. Um, And we are not afraid to do that to each other because we also know that if you do that to the other person, you'll only do it when you need to. You don't do it unnecessarily. But when you do do it, the other person will know I'm doing this because I care about you as an individual and I also care about this organisation that we're running and I want it to be the best that it can possibly be. So I guess I would say when you're starting that journey, like find your other person because it, it is lonely. It's, it's a really, really lonely journey founding a charity and starting on that journey because it, it's quite lonely at the top. But if you have that other person alongside you, it's, it's less lonely and you always have somebody to bounce things off and when things are hard you have another person to sit there you know over a coffee or a wine whatever your preference is (laughs) and go this is really hard (laughs) and I think that is that would actually be the best piece of advice is Mm -hmm. is try not to do it on your own because it it will only serve to to isolate you further and make you feel even more lonely so find your other person and um What's the hardest truth that you've had to listen to from Rachel then, Laura? (laughs) That's a good question. She served me a lot of home truths, but one memory particularly stands out, which was around this time last year. And we've learned that this time of year, because anti-slavery week month is in October and tends to be quite demanding. 
And last year, so I see my job, as I mentioned, as having two main roles, which is sort of spending two plates of one is looking after the organisation and its health and growth and well-being, and the other one is national advocacy and informing policy and development. And last year around this time, I had a lot of commitments that were external down in London, all over the country, and and I, I wasn't around that much. And I remember going and having a coffee with Rachel in John Lewis, and she said to me, you have taken your eyes off of the organisation, essentially that plate. You, you've been spinning one of them really well, but the other one's really starting to wobble. And she she told me a few of the consequences of that. And, and I am uh, an emotional person. I tend to keep it under control if I'm leading or in, in an organisation. I don't necessarily always cry. But in this situation, I feel very comfortable with Rachel. And and so I remember sitting in John Lewis and crying and and asking her clarifying questions. And I remember Rachel saying to me, I could see you sorting through the information that I was telling you while you were, <laughs> while you were crying and then asking me further questions and then you'd take that in and think about it and then you'd ask me another question and and I, I think we reflected on that afterwards as a really again another amazing point in our friendship and in our leadership relationship together of learning you serve those home home truths and they can hurt but they are not they're not there purposefully to hurt you they are there to try and develop you and and she said I really appreciated she said I was I didn't know how you would take it but I really appreciated that when I told you you didn't bite my head off and try and convince me as to why that was the right thing she said you just took the information and I could see you sorting it through and she said and then you went away and you thought about it and came back and you kind of came up with different ways of dealing with things and so it it was a it was a real uh, eye-opener and it, it really made me sit up and think and and you know we've had similar recently because we've gone through quite a lot of growth and we've had a few of those moments of going oh gosh okay what we were doing before isn't working for us now and that's I've had another last month of doing some external plate spinning and then realizing okay I need, and I had to say to somebody recently who I've been working with externally, um, you may not hear from me as much for the next couple of weeks because I need to put my focus back on to the charity and make sure that that grows in a healthy way. And I really need to spend some time thinking about that strategy and thinking about what we're doing. Um, But I will get back in contact with you in a little bit. And I think that was on reflection of the learning of, of Rachel serving me that home truth about a year ago. Well, it's been an absolutely fascinating interview, Laura. Thanks, thanks for having me. For Thanks for this insight into your work as leader and, and the work of the Snowdrop Project. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Compassionate Leadership interview. You can order Compassionate Leadership, the book, at compassion-leadership.co.uk or on Amazon. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can find me at patreon.com forward slash Chris Whitehead. Email me about the show chris at damflask-consulting.com. This episode was recorded at Rebel Base Media in Sheffield and the music was brought to you by 96 Back on CPU Records.